and welcome to Cato Surveillance Week 2023. I'm Patrick Eddington, Senior Fellow here at the Institute. We're so delighted that you're able to join us uh, for this panel, the first of four that will take place this week, uh, each day at 1 p.m. Eastern. And uh, today we're going to be taking a look back as well as a little bit of a look at what's going on right now uh, with respect to the legacy, essentially, of 9-11 in a, a domestic surveillance and maybe even an international surveillance context. Uh, just a couple of quick administrative notes here before we actually dive in and I do the introductions uh, of our very distinguished uh, panel today. Uh, you can submit your questions online via our webpage, Facebook, and YouTube, as well as on Twitter. And if you're on Twitter, please use the hashtag Century of Surveillance. Uh, and I'll just say, if you simply, you know, type in Century of Surveillance into Google and put Cato with that, it will take you to the timeline that we built uh, that basically covers the period from the very early 20th century, pretty much up to the present, a whole series of events, uh, some of which are still underway, as you'll see. Uh, from that particular timeline, but please do use that hashtag as we go forward. Um, I want to turn now and, and give a quick introduction to, you know, each of our panelists here. Uh, Pat Toomey, the Deputy Director of the ACLU's National Security Project. Faiza Patel, uh, Senior Director of the Brandon Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. And finally, Kerry Cordero, uh, a former assistant U.S. attorney, as well as the Robert M. Gates Senior Fellow and General Counsel at the Center for New American Security. Thank you all so much for carving out time uh, to be with us today. Um, I'll just say very quickly to kind of, you know, break the ice a little bit. You know, I was actually homesick on 9-11. On uh, I was actually, ironically, supposed to be in the very section of the Pentagon that was ultimately hit by one of the airliners. And um, when I finally managed to roll out of bed a little bit after 9 a.m. on that morning, I, I turned on NBC and of course, I saw the first tower burning um, and uh, the news anchors, uh, including Katie Couric, you know, saying that a, a plane had struck uh, one of the towers uh, in New York City, one of the World Trade Center towers. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand how that could possibly have happened because it was a perfectly clear sky and an absolutely beautiful morning. And then it was uh, only about 30 minutes later uh, that I watched in complete horror as the second aircraft was rammed in to the other tower. And it was in that instant that I knew that we were under attack and that I also knew that it was almost certainly Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda that was responsible for it. That organization, of course, having been responsible for the attacks on our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998, and then the attack on the USS Cole in Aden, Yemen in the fall of 2000. I knew uh, as soon as that happened, as soon as I witnessed that, that horrible, horrible event, that essentially none of our lives were gonna be the same. Um, I knew that we'd wind up going to war in order to try to track down bin Laden and his henchmen, and of course we did. But unfortunately, that war wound up expanding virtually globally uh, as a result of multiple authorizations for the use of military force, which have still not been taken off of the books, much to the chagrin of my colleagues uh, here at Cato who work defense and foreign policy. But at the same time uh, that the military action uh, was initiated, essentially, the planning for it was initiated, something else started to happen too. And that was a massive uh, domestic surveillance uh, and international surveillance effort designed essentially to identify whether or not uh, any, of the any other hijackers were basically potentially on the loose here in the United States. 
Uh, and that began with the National Security Agency and, and then director of NSA, Michael Hayden, you know, activating a particular program that would subsequently uh, be made public. And we'll talk about that as we get into it. But I, I knew on that day that, um, you know, the life of this nation, you know, would simply not be the same. And, and I'm sure it's never been the same and can never be the same for the victims. But I, I wanted to just take a couple of minutes for each of you to kind of talk about, you know, where you were and and what you were doing and thinking. And, and Carrie, I'd like to start with you because you wrote a very, very uh, fascinating and, and uh, you know, clearly emotional piece for the Just Security blog uh, just a couple of years ago, kind of as remembrance, essentially. And what was it like? You were at the Department of Justice, a relatively new employee at the time. Tell us, if you can, just in a minute or two, you know, what it was like that first day and in the, in the, in the weeks immediately after. Sure. So, um, Patrick, it's um, really great to be with all of you uh, today uh, at the Cato Surveillance Conference. Uh, again, I've, I've been able to be part of this conference in the past year, so I'm glad to be back with all of you um, and appreciate the historical context that, um, that you're starting off with here. Um, as you launch into a series of conversations about um, present surveillance activities uh, and uh, what the future of surveillance, national security surveillance looks like. Um, that piece, so Just Security is a wonderful blog. I've written for it before. That particular piece, if any members of your viewers um, want to, to look at it, um, was published with Lawfare on the 20th anniversary of September 11th. So that piece was published on September 11th, 20. 21. And from time to time, um, I've been able to write reflections on uh, my experience on September 11th. And usually from the context, for many years, I taught a course at Georgetown Law focused on intelligence reform and the changes to the law since 9-11 in the national security space. And uh, usually from time to time over the course of many years after September 11, 2001, I would focus those pieces on lessons that we could glean from the 9-11 Commission report itself, which, which, which was published in 2004 um, and which provided the authoritative uh, accounting of what transpired in the events leading up to September 11th and then made recommendations about how to restructure government to prevent any future such activity from ever happening again. Um, and on the 20th anniversary, I thought it was uh, probably finally time to talk a little bit about um, just what it was like that day. So obviously this was over 20 years ago. Um, so I was a very, very junior employee at the Justice Department. Um, I was a law student at the time, was going to law school at night at American University's Washington College of Law, was uh, working at the Justice Department during the day in what at the time was a tiny, tiny office that reported um, through a council for intelligence policy to, to the attorney general. There was no national security division of the Justice Department at that time. There was one small office of uh, probably under 20 lawyers, uh, me as a law clerk, a few administrative staff who were uh, working on counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and other national security matters for the department. Um, and so what I experienced that week really was a um, 
small number of people who mobilized to work under the existing legal framework, which was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which we'll spend a lot of time, I think, talking about this hour, um, and trying to operate in which was what was at the time, obviously, a crisis environment. Um, and so I saw individuals, um, a lot of the piece that I wrote for Lawfare focuses on you know, how I looked at individuals who were in leadership positions, how they adapted that week, um, what it was like for me as a really junior employee at the time, the lowest person on the totem pole, um, watching senior leaders um, be in charge, uh, watch them uh, at times seem unsettled. Um, and so it was a very different experience from those who watched the events transpire on TV or read about the events in, in the news. For me, it was working until one o'clock a.m. that night and then coming back to work the next day at 5 a.m. and sort of continuing that pace um, for days and, and many colleagues continued that pace for weeks, uh, if not months. Um, but it was uh, a time where I was present uh, beginning late that morning on September 11th in the FBI Strategic Information Command Center, which then over time ramped up to be the nerve center for the global investigation to uh, uncover what was the plot that became the 9-11 attacks. My apologies to Ben Wittes and Jack Goldsmith over at Lawfare. Um, uh, it's funny how you can have something written clearly in your notes and then you get something else on your brain. This is what happens when you get older. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, that kind of a wartime environment, your description of it, uh, certainly brings back memories for me for the 1990 Gulf War uh, when I was working at a 24-hour watch center in the intelligence community. Um, and uh, so I, I, I can identify with that most definitely. Um, Pat Toomey, uh, you were also in law school at the time, if I recall correctly, or getting ready to go to law school. Um, your perspective, essentially, you know, what, what were you thinking, you know, essentially? How did you feel ultimately when you saw this unfold? And how, how did it ultimately inform, you know, some of your career decision making? Thanks, Pat. And it's great to be here um, as part of this week talking about how the events of 9-11 still shape um, many of the conversations and debates we're having today about surveillance. Um, it may surprise you, but I was actually a college student when 9-11 uh, when happened, and I just got back from my 20th reunion um, and was thinking a bit of, about this coming into the panel. Um, you know, I experienced 9-11 as really a member of the public in a lot of ways, um, but it was the start of um, much greater awareness about all the issues that 9-11 raised for us as a country and uh, you know all the government powers that were exercised um, and expanded in the aftermath of those events. And uh, a couple of years after uh, those events, uh, I headed to law school and was part of a um, clinic team there that worked on a number of the issues that came out of the Bush administration's response to 9-11, um, including including surveillance in the Al-Haramain case, um, including the Al-Kid versus Ashcroft case related to detention and pretextual detention and arrest of material witnesses, many of whom were Muslim American. Um, 
and the really vast number of detentions that occurred after 9-11, especially in the New York and New Jersey area of, of Muslim Americans. Um, so, you know, I think my awareness of, of those, of the impact of those events as a lawyer grew over time. And uh, the work that I did in those years um, in law school, I think, had obviously a formative, um, you know, were formative for me and left a, you know, immense mark on my career path to the ACLU. Uh, I got to the ACLU, and I think we'll come back to this, um, just a couple months before the Snowden disclosures, which were, you know, this event is timed around the 10th anniversary. And the Supreme Court's decision in Clapper versus Amnesty, one of the surveillance cases related to Section 702, uh, came down, I think, four or five days before I started at the ACLU. And so we were thinking from almost my first day there about how to respond to that decision. And I think as we learned subsequently from Edward Snowden himself, that decision had an immense impact on his choice to uh, release materials to the public that shed huge light on how the government's ex surveillance activities expanded in the, the 12 years between 9-11 and those, those disclosures. Um, so I think we'll come back to many of those topics, but although there were important and dramatic moments of transparency between 9-11 and the, the Snowden disclosures, um, those, those disclosures gave us a much fuller picture into many of the issues related to Section 702 and Executive Order 12333 surveillance um, that I, I know we'll get into today. You up to at the time that this incredibly horrible thing happened. So I was actually on vacation. Um, I was uh, at a house in a, a remote part of, of Italy with some friends. Uh, I wasn't living in the US at the time. I was living in, in The Hague. I was working in disarmament and arms control and we had no TV or anything. Uh, but in the afternoon, uh, people's blackberries and it was all blackberries back then uh, lit up with the news. And I remember going to this hotel in the nearby village at that night to watch and see what's happening. Um, and obviously shock and horror that everybody felt. Um, I think I had a little bit of a different perspective on the whole 9-11 experience because for two reasons. One is that um, I'm Pakistani by birth. So my sort of instant thought was, what does this mean in terms of, you know, where the U.S. is going to go to war? Um, and, you know, that was obviously a, a reasonable fear. But then I didn't come back to the U.S. until 2007, which is when I moved back to the U.S. and started working on national security issues. And the reason I started working on national security issues was because I felt, you know, having left as, as a you know, very junior lawyer and coming back as, you know, still fairly sort of mid-level lawyer, um, I was kind of shocked at what I thought were the changes in the U.S., both in terms of how I perceived the legal system and how I perceived the society. I had, you know, so many friends who were Pakistanis and Muslims and Arabs who told stories of how they were treated at airports and sometimes even in the streets. 
And I just really came back to a society that I felt had changed really fundamentally in terms of how it treated Muslims. And that very much motivated me to sort of make my career in this field. Actually, a, a perfect segue to the, uh, the other question that I wanted to ask Carrie about her lawfare piece. Um, in that piece, uh, you said this, and I, I'm quoting directly. I did not believe then, and I don't assess now, that 9-11 and Al-Qaeda presented an existential threat to the United States. And it struck me that certainly the Bush administration, um, from my perspective anyway, tr definitely treated it uh, as much more along the lines of, of a seemingly existential threat in terms of you know, this massive uh, military campaign that was ultimately mounted, not just in Afghanistan, which to my mind was fully justified, but of course against Iraq, um, which was not, uh, again, in my view. So when you were there at Justice and all of this began to take place, you know, from September all the way essentially through the end of the year, um, what was what was the kind of the mindset essentially that, that you were seeing among your colleagues and, and what were you hearing in terms of, you know, what the administration was potentially thinking about doing? Were there any were there any concerns essentially raised, I guess is what I'm asking, about where all of this might take us? So thanks for the question, Patrick. So I think it's really important um, that I emphasize for our, our viewers that this was 20 years ago. And so my perspective at the time was one of someone who was very, very junior, uh, still in law school, uh, not part of the senior level policy uh, conversations that, uh, you know, today in a similar environment I might be part of. Um, so if if I think back on this from my perspective at the time and the conversations that, that I was part of and the environment that I was part of, it was all about preventing the next attack. So I cannot emphasize to you enough what the threat environment was actually like at that time. And from my perspective, uh, at that time, which was to support operational matters uh, and operate within the, the legal framework and the Justice Department role in supporting operational matters, meaning investigations. Um, the objective was to uh, prevent another similar follow-on attack. And much of the intelligence environment um, in the days, weeks, months, and years following the September 11, 2001 attacks were of constant, persistent threats um, that were real, that were real efforts by international terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda, and then in years later, um, follow-on groups that uh, adhered to similar ideologies and strove to be as prominent as that era of Al-Qaeda's organization was, their goal was to conduct more attacks against Americans, against American interest, um, and, and other parts of the world as well. So my perspective at the time was, from an operational perspective, um, our job was to prevent another attack. Um, from a, if I look at things in terms of uh, sort of today's policy environment, or how do I see um, the, the changes that have taken place to the laws uh, since September 11th, um, 
the Patriot Act, FISA Section 702, FISA Amendments Act, which I know will be uh, perhaps part of our conversation, but also um, part of much of the conversations as your surveillance um, week discussions continue. My approach from a policy perspective um, at this time is moving forward. So in other words, much of the work that I've engaged in has been um, not to try to undo changes to the law that from my perspective did prevent another follow-on attack on the scale of 9-11, but also to make sure that those laws and the changes to the laws are uh, modernized, are um, adapted to reflect the current threat environment, which is one that is really, really different than what it was like 20 years ago. What's really interesting, um, and, and thank you for those for those observations, and I, I understand the limitations that you faced at the time in terms of potentially you know, access, obviously, to the higher level decision-making discussions that were taking place. But I just find it really interesting, um, all of the discussion essentially that, that we're having around 702 and, and I would say around the Patriot Act ultimately as well, which we'll get into in more detail just in a moment. These were authorities that did not exist prior to 9-11 and, and what, what both the Congressional Joint Inquiry found in 2002 and the 9-11 Commission uh, two years later was that it was not a lack of collection that got us in trouble. <laughs> it was a failure to actually uh, connect the dots, uh, to use um, uh, the words of the chairman, um, uh, Governor Kane, uh, you know, of the 9-11 Commission. And so that, that's what I find so interesting about so much of the discussion about these authorities that were subsequently enacted is that they were put in place essentially before any investigation had actually taken place into why uh, the attacks had succeeded. And, and so we, we have this bizarre situation, in my view at least, of putting literally the cart before the horse uh, from a policy standpoint. Um, and, you know, FISA had, had mentioned um, in her intro remarks um, that the concerns about what would ultimately happen to Arab and Muslim Americans and, you know, just uh, Arab and Muslim uh, immigrants um, here, you know, that really became a major focus uh, ultimately. And Faisa, go ahead and, and share with us, um, in essence, kind of remind the audience, if you will, what happened in those weeks and months after uh, the attacks uh, from an immigration uh, standpoint um, and, uh, and a domestic uh, search and seizure standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I think two of the big things that happened um, were, were really using immigration laws, right? So using... Um, the material witness laws, for example, to, as Patrick mentioned, to round up Arab Muslim men, uh, mainly in New York and New Jersey, um, and put them into detention. And I think about 1,200 uh, people were rounded up. Um, you know, I don't think anything really ever came of it, but there were surely deportations and immigration violations and the like. But that was a very frightening thing for the Muslim community. I think people still talk about that, right? Because that was such a shock to the system that like people were getting picked up en masse on the streets. Um, and around the same time, uh, you had the voluntary questioning program where you had law enforcement agents often working with local police again, rounding up Arab Muslim men, immigrants, so not American citizens, uh, about 8,000 people were called in for these interviews, which were supposedly voluntary. They weren't voluntary. I mean, there was a huge amount of pressure, obviously, 
uh, to come in and, and to talk to the authorities. Again, sending a sort of a seismic shock through a, uh, through a through communities that were really, you know, pretty low key part of American society, right? It was not a community that was used to seeing itself as um, discriminated against. Obviously, there was discrimination, but it wasn't a community that sort of saw itself as as vulnerable, particularly. Um, and then you had um, you had NCOs. I mean, you started getting the institutionalization, right? You start off with these sort of very um, very broad measures and very sort of physical and in your face. And then you start having this institutionalization. You have the NCRS program, for example, which was the registration, again, focused on, on, on immigrant communities. Um, and then you have um, you know, just a series of, of different programs, right? Starting with things like how the FBI was investigating uh, um, individuals, right? You, you move away from the idea that investigations should be tethered to some form of criminal suspicion. Uh, and you go to this idea that, well, as long as you are, you know, you have an authorized purpose in the, in the view of an agent, uh, you can start an investigation or at least an assessment. Um, and these, I think, have led to some of the, the, the biggest abuses uh, of the last 20 years where Muslim communities have had informants placed in them, just basically listening in, not going to a mosque or a community center because they suspect someone there is terrorist or has links to a terrorist or has committed a crime or might be committing a crime, but just to sit in there and listen. And I think that that is the, the big change, I think, that over the last two decades, which I think has sort of basically infused our entire system. There's this, this change from looking for something that is predicated to just kind of looking broadly for people who are might be doing something wrong in some vision. Um, and so I think that's been a huge change for the Muslim American community also in terms of its own self-perception Right, going from a community that was relatively well integrated, you know, big parts of the community are relatively well educated, they're well off, they don't see themselves as being vulnerable or victims. And now over the last 20 years, I think that has really changed where Muslim Americans view has really changed. I'd like to, um, you know, bring Pat Toomey into the conversation. Um, and in fact, all of you, um, FISA has kind of brought us up to um, almost uh, the mid-decade period of the 2000s now with, with references to um, uh, the use of assessments. And, and for the benefit of our, of our audience, uh, in December of 2008, then Attorney General Michael Mukasey, uh, essentially as one of his last acts going out of office, updated what are known as the Attorney General Guidelines for uh, Domestic FBI Investigations. And those guidelines were originally promulgated in 1976 by then Attorney General Edward Levy. And this was all happening in the wake of the major uh, scandals involving the FBI with the so-called counterintelligence program or COINTELPRO. And a lot of the concerns that flowed out of that, um, there were efforts to try to actually get a legislative charter uh, for the FBI through the Congress. There was a lot of discussion and it wasn't just the FBI, there were multiple components of, of law and federal law enforcement and the intelligence community that 
um, then Senator Inouye uh, was thinking about trying to basically, you know, put under some kind of legislative uh, charter. Um, but Ed Levy, when he issued those initial guidelines, essentially succeeded in taking the wind out of the sails. And the guidelines underwent, you know, various changes over the course uh, of the years. But Mukasey's changes in December 2008 were by far the most remarkable as far as I'm concerned. And the most important one is the one that Fize has already mentioned, which is this creation of a de facto category of investigation called an assessment. And these assessments do not require any kind of criminal predicate to open. Um, when I first learned of the existence of these things, I was rather shocked uh, that it would be possible to have something like this in the United States. And of course, um, I, I think a lot of the rationale behind that was, uh, at least in part, this massive information flow that Kerry has referenced. Uh, when you get just oodles and oodles of information coming in, it's obviously going to put tremendous pressure on investigators to try to figure out, you know, essentially what's real and what's not, separating the the chaff from the weed, if you will. Um, but by the same token, our, our criminal justice system is essentially predicated on this idea of, of individual guilt uh, and normally tethered to some kind of uh, reasonable suspicion, if not probable cause. So I'm, I'm just wondering, um, you know, Carrie, I don't know how much time you spent, you know, looking at the FBI's use of assessments and these overall investigative authorities. But if you've got some thoughts essentially on this, I would, I would certainly uh, really love to hear them. Sure, so just um, start off feedback in terms of that part of the conversation. So um, so the guidelines actually, you started with Levy and you ended with McKinsey, but there was substantial revisions uh, by Attorney General Ashcroft um, in the intervening years. And um, one of the significant things about the review that um, Attorney General Ashcroft did is there used to be a whole bunch of different, to, to summarize it, there used to be a whole bunch of different sets of attorney general guidelines for different types of investigations, um, national security, criminal, depending on uh, sort of the different category of investigation. And Attorney General Ashcroft, um, working with the FBI and his Office of Legal Policy, and, and it was a very comprehensive um, multi-year effort throughout the Justice Department and working with the FBI to revise the guidelines and condense them down to them what became the attorney general guidelines for FBI domestic operations. And so the, from my perspective, the really substantial um, revisions and modernization to the guidelines came during um, that set of years. With respect to assessments in particular, so there's different categories for our viewers, there's different categories of investigations. So there's what's, a full in, what's called a full investigation when um, that, enables the investigators to use um, very intrusive techniques like surveillance or searches. And there's what was called preliminary investigations. And then this category of threat assessments basically was intended, as I understood it at the time, to enable investigators to do certain limited types of investigative, investigative steps and checks um, checking public source, open source information, for example, or checking into certain databases of information that had already been collected. But a limited scope of review, um, if, for example, um, some type of report were to come into investigators and they just need to be able to do the very early stages of looking into something to determine whether or not it needs further investigation. So um, it, it really was intended, my understanding at the time, was to 
free up investigators to do a limited uh, set of checks or queries or, or uh, early stage uh, look into something to determine whether it then needed further follow on and investigation. Um, from an oversight perspective, um, and as a lawyer at the Justice Department many years ago, I was involved in a lot of the oversight efforts. From an oversight perspective, what, what an overseer, whether within the department or from Congress's perspective, would want to make sure is that those assessments um, followed the timeframes that they were uh, intended to be in. So they were supposed to only be for a certain amount of time, not continue on uh, indefinitely or for a long period of time, that they were conducted in the cabined or limited scope that they were intended. And you just want to make sure that there's sufficient oversight over that process so that um, they are conducted in the narrow way that they were originally intended. And that if it turns out that investigators conduct a threat assessment and there's nothing there, then that matter needs to be closed. Pat, Spiza, um, how's it actually worked out with assessments? <laughs> uh, I'll start and say a bit. Um, you know, we have been very critical of that addition to the attorney general guidelines. Um, it does not require factual predication, I think, as, as Faiza mentioned. And it, it encompasses some very intrusive techniques, even though it is supposed to be very, very, you know, more preliminary than a preliminary investigation. Um, and, you know, I think the lack of factual predication has really opened the door to um, discrimination and bias profiling and confirmation bias to operate at certain very early stages of FBI investigations. And so um, I think in assessments have been you know, hugely problematic for many of the um, Muslim immigrant and Muslim American communities that we've talked about, but we, we also believe that they've, they, it's proven problematic for uh, Asian American and Chinese Americans who are now coming under scrutiny by the FBI um, in, you know, in the context of the China Initiative, which now has been formally disavowed, um, but the rising geopolitical tensions uh, with China. So, and you know, I'll just mention, because I know we'll come back to Section 702, that um, our understanding for, for a while has been that, that agents can even run queries through the Section 702 databases. Um, now, I think there are some additional rules that constrain them, but um, the, the availability of even those intrusive tools to search warrantlessly through Americans' private emails and other communications, you know, raises serious concerns about what agents can look at and how they can intrude on people's privacy, even at their, that very threshold stage. And for a sec? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing to, to just kind of clarify is that searching public databases doesn't actually require an assessment. I mean, according to the FBI, they have the authority to do that regardless of whether or not an assessment is open. And as Patrick mentioned, actually, the, assess the tools available in the assessment, while you're right, Carrie, obviously not a search warrant level tool, but there's a lot of information that is available in government databases, probably a lot more now than there was uh, back in 2008. So that is actually access to a really, really broad variety of information. You can also, um, at an assessment stage, you know, task 
um, certain kind, certain informants were already on board, for example. And the way I look at it, assessments really sort of turn the turn the 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 um, issue on its head. They really kind of enable the FBI to go out and look for people who might have committed something, some kind of crime, right? So they're not actually looking based on anything objective. And that's what gives them the opportunity that sort of opens the door to bias. And I think in the post 9-11 world, that bias was really firmly directed at Muslim Americans. And that's really where we saw the brunt of these assessments playing out. I think it also really ties into a lot of the kind of sting operations that have been very controversial over the last 20 years, where you have you know, somebody who goes into um, a mosque, like that guy in uh, California, Craig Montiel, right, goes into a mosque, says he is tasked to basically, you know, go around saying provocative and controversial things and perhaps pull people into some kind of plot that is manufactured by the FBI. Now, I understand that there are a lot of people in every community, including the Muslim American community, who say some crazy shit, right? Uh, they say stuff that's like really disturbing. But that stuff gets taken seriously when Muslims say it. And it obviously doesn't get taken seriously when other people say it, as we've seen pretty clearly illustrated over the last couple of years. You've raised a, a very interesting question there, Faiza, with, with respect to speech uh, and how it can potentially trigger surveillance. Um, Carrie, when, when you were at Justice, um, how, much, how much did the Brandenburg v. Ohio decision come up in the context of you know, some of these kinds of investigations where there was a clear, you know, domestic nexus. I'm, I'm just curious. And, and for the benefit of our, uh, our viewers and our listeners, in 1969, Clarence Brandenburg, a, a member of the Ku Klux Klan in Ohio, uh, basically was shut down from, you know, engaging in his kind of speech uh, under a particular syndicalism uh, statute that had been on the books. Long story short, he appeals. It ultimately gets to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court creates a two-part test uh, with respect to, you know, this line between just really vile speech and an actual transition towards an imminent incitement to violence. And that's, I think, essentially, you know, what, what FISA was kind of uh, indirectly referencing here. So, Carrie, I'm just curious, you know, to the extent that you can recall, and I know it's been a long time, uh, or even since you've been at Justice, if you've had a chance to think about that particular issue, but at least a justice when you were there, this issue of Brandenburg v. Ohio, this line between speech and action, how often did that come up? I'm just kind of curious. So um, so thinking, so I have two, two thoughts on this. One, um, which goes back to my days as uh, an operational counterterrorism lawyer working on uh, cases that went before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and then one that I think is is really relevant to today's uh, domestic security threat environment. So um, on the prior, I would say that First Amendment issues were constantly top of mind to uh, uh, particularly the lawyers at the Justice Department who were um, working with agents and analysts to prepare matters that went to the court. Um, a FISA court application includes a factual recitation of an investigation. And the attorney general 
guidelines for FBI domestic operations contain a caveat that in, that the investigation um, and and uh, and so then therefore that continued into FISA surveillance cannot be based solely on First Amendment activities. So that concept of investigative activities, uh, surveillance requests, search requests, as a general matter, not being based solely on First Amendment activities um, was a concept and uh, a legal concept that was, I think, constantly top of mind to uh, individuals, national security professionals who were working on these types of investigations. Um, that being said, the solely is important. The word solely is important because uh, what people say online, uh, what they uh, might be communicating that's obtained through other intelligence sources can be a factor, it just can't be the dispositive factor. So um, if you're an investigator or a lawyer reviewing a case, you can't ignore uh, threatening statements or uh, writings or engagement that an individual uh, may have that is of a threatening nature. Um, but if it is First Amendment protected activity, it cannot be the only basis to go forward on. So I think that principle, Patrick, held um, certainly throughout um, the time that I was involved in national security operational matters back then. Um, I think it's even a harder uh, issue that federal investigators are uh, working through now as it pertains to uh, domestic terrorism cases or racially and ethnically uh, motivated violent extremism, um, which is currently presently a serious and significant threat in the US. Um, and there is also um, a transnational aspect to these types of violent extremist groups. Um, and in fact, if I can just mention, uh, tomorrow uh, on this, at Center for New American Security, I'm gonna have Nick Rasmussen, who's the DHS counterterrorism coordinator, um, uh, as well as some other experts in the area talk about that aspect of things. Um, I do tend to assess as an outsider now that uh, the government is uh, perhaps struggling some with adapting its investigative activities in a way that robustly uh, and as they did 20 years ago, seriously look at the international terrorism threat of the Al-Qaeda variety um, and take equally seriously uh, racially and ethically motivated violent extremism and related domestic violent extremism in the US and be able to appropriately navigate that First Amendment line. Because the reason it becomes harder is because you're just dealing with many more Americans who are engaged in this activity. Um, and so the First Amendment issues become more prevalent because the investigative subjects are primarily here in the US as opposed to uh, foreign-based subjects. So I'll pause there. Um, I would imagine um, Patrick and Faiza probably have thoughts about that as well. Guys, I think you're muted. Yeah. Uh, no? There we go. We can hear you now. Oh, thank you. Um, I think one of the things that, that you raise, um, Carrie, is kind of interesting, right? As, as you know, people who sort of start out working on the international terrorism and now are like trying to adapt to domestic terrorism, it's just really interesting to see the struggle in a sense. Um, 
for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, in terms of numbers, if you take um, if you take January 6th out of the equation, I'm not sure that the number of Americans being looked at by the FBI today is that different when they were really focused on Muslim Americans over the last two decades. It's a little bit difficult to know because their categories are so fuzzy. So it's a little bit difficult to know exactly who's being looked at in what context. But I think one thing that's always struck me is the fact that with Muslim Americans, there is always a presumption that they are have some kind of at least ideological affinity for a foreign terrorist ideology. Whereas the sort of transnational aspects of white supremacist violence are sort of secondary. And the thing that really strikes me in this is the fact that the categories and the descriptions are so different within law enforcement. So homegrown violent extremists, HGVE, is the term that was is used by the FBI, by DHS and other agencies when they're talking about Muslim Americans who they suspect of terrorism, right? And all that really means is that even if someone is born in this country, raised in this country, is an American, Right. The fact that they have some ideological affinity with a supposed foreign ideology is enough to put them in a special category, whereas domestic violent extremism or domestic terrorism is treated as something different. Right. It's something where these are real Americans, it seems. These are people for whom the ideology is considered to be um, an American ideology. Now, without sort of going into the idea of like, which is which, I mean, I think both those notions to me seem really wrong because ideology just transcends national borders, but they do reflect this sort of fundamental underlying concept of Muslim Americans as other and a sort of white supremacist as being more American. Sorry, maybe that was a little too much uh, punditry there, but like I, I really feel that, that that is just so fundamental to how the the differences in how these two issues are approached. I do want to get Pat Toomey uh, an opportunity to, to jump in here, but just very quickly for some historical context, and, and I do think it is really important. Uh, I've I've finished a manuscript dealing with domestic surveillance and political repression, the first of a of a two volume series, um, and and this particular manuscript covers the period essentially from. Uh, 1901, uh, all the way up through Dwight Eisenhower's last day in office. And what's fascinating, what was fascinating and terrifying was to go through records from the World War I era and to see just exactly how victimized German Americans were. And I'm talking about lynchings, I'm talking about murders, all these kinds of things. So I, I, I think it's, it's a phenomenon that unfortunately is human. Um, because here you were talking about, you know, one group of essentially Anglo-Americans, uh, you know, persecuting another group of white Americans, uh, a large number of them ultimately. And again, it's that foreign, it's that foreigner aspect to it, right? I mean, so there has to be, there has to be, you know, they have to be colluding in some way, right? And I, I think it's a broader, ultimately societal problem. It's just that over the course of the last, and I would actually go back further, Faiza. I, I think the focus on Arab and Muslim Americans easily goes back to the to the Palestinian rights uh, era. Um, I mean, they they targeted Professor Said at Columbia and and so many others 
Um, and there's the whole vulgar betrayal investigation, which we don't remotely have time to get into today. So I, I don't think there's any question that's been going on. But this this is a phenomenon that if you go back and you actually look at the historical record, an awful lot of groups, um, either ethnically, religiously, politically, have wound up in the government's crosshairs. And it's a completely consistent pattern. And, and that's what, to me, speaks to kind of the larger problem uh, that, that I think we're dealing with here. I, I'd, I'd like to come back to that, but I want to give Pat Toomey an, an opportunity to respond there. I mean, the only thing I'll add quickly on the First Amendment question is um, to come back to Carrie's point about the most of the regulations, um, both in some of the statutes and the rules, use this term solely. And it is uh, it's, it's hardening to know that, that that is taken really seriously by, by people working in the government. But I think what we've seen from outside the government is that that term bears a lot of weight and almost becomes vanishingly, like a vanishingly small category. There's a FISA court opinion that we obtained through some of our litigation um, in the court or at public access that deals with one of these issues. And although it's redacted, it, it kind of illustrates how um, you know, even showing support for an organization, making statements of support for an organization that engages in acts of terrorism can be stretched in a way that, um, where the court, the FISA court in that instance granted approval to conduct surveillance under sec section 215, which has the solely limitation. So it's very, in, outside the government, it appears very easy to kind of find something else that, that, you know, the government says makes it you know, shows that it's not solely for First Amendment purposes. Job, I think, kind of setting up this whole issue of the future. Um, and I'm sure that all of us, um, probably those, the four of us that are on this panel probably feel pretty much the same way about what happened leading up to during and after January 6th. Um, but it, it does raise questions when we start talking about um, drawing a line again between speech and action. And, you know, we have Ann Vroom online asking, essentially, um, she uses the phrase cooperative task forces. I think what she's probably referencing are actually the joint terrorism task forces. Um, you know, when we start talking about these federal, state, and local partnerships, how much of a concern, Carrie, do you have about the state and local law enforcement partners necessarily being as well-versed and as um, concerned about these kinds of issues that, that FISA and Pat have raised with respect you know, to First, First Amendment protections as they pertain well, to investigation. Well, it's important to keep in mind, you know, what are the roles and responsibilities of the different um, security services or law enforcement organizations? So it's the FBI at the federal government that is primarily tasked with conducting national security investigations, counterterrorism investigations, including domestic terrorism investigations. That is their job, and, and the FBI has prim primary responsibility for those types of investigations. Then at the federal government level, there's the Department of Homeland Security, and in particular, the Office uh, of Intelligence and Analysis, which has a role in information sharing um, both from state and local and other law enforcement up to the intelligence community, as well as the other way, pushing information that the federal government knows out to 
state and local law enforcement. State and local law enforcement, on the other hand, their primary job is public safety um, and protecting their communities. And that uh, the nature of the law enforcement and public safety challenges that they face um, often depends on a particular region and different areas have particular um, challenges that they are dealing with, whether it's a particular region that is uh, very uh, struggling with addressing the fentanyl crisis, for example, um, or other types of drug trafficking, um, gun violence, other, you know, every, every region has different types of issues that they're dealing with all across the country. But, uh, but I would suggest to you that it is the federal government that is primarily responsible for uncovering uh, threats and uh, plots to conduct terrorism-related activities, whether that is international terrorism activities or whether that is domestic terrorism activities. To be, to be a little bit more precise, I think the concern that I have, uh, and it's a concern I know that's shared, I'm sure, by our other panelists, is the number of state and local law enforcement officers who, who wind up being deputized by the FBI, by DEA, by other uh, HSI over at, at the Department of Homeland Security. And I think you know, one of the concerns that I have is, first off, we don't know how many people that involves, you know, how many state and locals get that kind of protection. Because once they are actually deputized to act in a federal capacity, um, that means qualified immunity, you know, comes into play for these officers, certainly in the federal context. And so if they engage in misconduct, it's in that respect, it's virtually impossible to hold them accountable. Um, so I, I know I, I certainly have, uh, you know, grave concerns on that. We have about six minutes left here um, in this panel. I wanted to make sure that we managed to get in at least a, another question or two from our audience. Um, some folks are asking, you know, why hasn't more been done to look into the rioters who burned federal offices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there was an awful lot of that, of course, that did happen. Portland was, was a nexus for that. Um, and it's my understanding, and I'm sure that Carrie and perhaps the others will correct me if I'm wrong, it's my understanding that there have, in fact, been a number of prosecutions of those individuals uh, that have taken place. Am, am I off base on that? I'm, I'm pretty sure that we have seen prosecutions for uh, the, the destruction, particularly the, the attacks on some of the federal buildings in Portland and elsewhere. Okay, I'm pretty sure Certainly, we have. If there's, if there's damage to uh, federal property, uh, federal government is, is pretty aggressive about being able to um, yeah. prosecute those types of cases. And uh, the January, you know, the January 6th investigation is also an example of a, a substantial nationwide, uh, extremely large and extensive uh, investigation uh, prosecuting individuals who were involved in the assault on the Capitol. Well, well I don't want us to um, leave today without giving each of you an opportunity to opine on the one federal surveillance authority that is actually uh, up for either renewal or expiration. Um, so, uh, Pat, I'll start with you and we'll go to FISA and Carrie, you will get the last word. Sure. I, you know, I, you're referring to Section 702 of FISA, which is up for renewal or expiration due to sunset in December of this year. And um, even now, about seven months out, we've seen a growing public debate around whether it should be reformed, reauthorized, allowed to sunset. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, there was the release of um, some new 
opinions by the FISA court, the secret intelligence court, describing the use of um, Section 702 to look for communications, uh, including in the context of uh, what, what seemed to be protests after um, George Floyd's death and in the context of the January 6th investigation, um, which I think grabbed a lot of headlines um, because the use of these types of searches, warrantless queries of people's communications um, that were obtained through Section 702 surveillance of people overseas is um, you know, increasingly controversial. And I think it, the, the public is still uh, learning how broadly those queries are used and the different purposes that they serve. And so we at the ACLU, we've been litigating challenges to Section 702 for years. Um, the courts have been, um, you know, the courts continue to evaluate many of the important constitutional questions around whether when you query someone who's who's been an American who's been subjected to this surveillance, what constitutional rules apply. Um, and those questions are front and center for Congress um, as well. And, and our view is that fundamental reforms are needed to uh, bring Section 702 in line with the Constitution. Biza? I have to associate myself with everything Patrick just said. Um, yeah, we, we think fundamental reforms are in fact needed for 702. And these repeated releases um, from the FISA court, which show that over and over again, the FBI has been accessing warrantlessly collected data about Americans, not for any you know, national security purpose, but really for all kinds of things and at, at really alarming rates. I remember, I don't think it was this release, Patrick, but the one before where they were using 702 to check for, to like do security clearances for contractors or something like that. And the numbers have been very large. I understand they have uh, diminished most recently as they have uh, separated 702 data out into a separate database, which seems to me like a good development. But this this really can't go on. And the FISA court has proved itself like totally unwilling to uh, really constrain the FBI in this way. Can you tell us why the authority should be reauthorized? Congress absolutely should renew uh, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It is absolutely a critical intelligence tool, um, although it was passed in an era where the primary justification at the time was for counterterrorism purposes. It has uh, it was originally intended and it has evolved into being an intelligence collection uh, framework under the law that enables collection about a wide array of national security threats. And so in Today's threat environment, what that means is that it enables intelligence collection uh, about what China is up to, about what Russia is up to vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine war, uh, North Korea, Iran, other threats. So it has a much broader use that is absolutely critical to national security because what it enables the government to do is be able to use information when these foreign adversaries are using the U.S. communications networks and systems. And so it's absolutely a critical authority. In the past, when this authority has been scheduled to sunset, there has been bipartisan support. And so I hope by the end of the year that um, that bipartisan consensus can be reached again to renew this important authority. And Kerry has uh, basically brought us to the end uh, of our program today. My thanks to Kerry Cordero, Faisa Patel, and Patrick Toomey.
for a great discussion today. I hope that it was enlightening uh, for our audience, uh, talking about some of the history, but also uh, especially some of the current events. And with respect to uh, Cato Surveillance Week, it continues tomorrow at one o'clock Eastern here, same place, where we will engage in a much broader discussion, uh, as well as a fairly deep discussion on surveillance reform prospects. Of course, FISA Section 702 will be a centerpiece of that discussion, but we'll be talking about other things like Executive Order 12333, a particular Drug Enforcement Administration authority that I am very deeply concerned about, and probably a whole lot more uh, that we're gonna try to cram into that hour. So I really hope that you will join us. For the Cato Institute, I'm Patrick Eddington. Thanks for watching.